Over the last several weeks, we've talked about the king's coming. We talked about the king's identity. We've talked about the king's message. That is what Jesus has to say, what we'll look at in a minute. And today, we're going to learn about the king's authority. The king's authority. And authority is kind of um, a complicated subject because authority by itself is a good thing. God has instituted uh, the world to have authority in, in places, but so often authority goes bad. You could um, just listen to the classic rock station and even modern rock for that matter, and you will find a lot of songs that are kind of shaking their fist at authority. And that's usually in response to some sort of perceived injustice or abuse of authority. Jack Black in the movie School of Rock has a whole statement about the man, right? If you've ever seen that movie, if you haven't seen that movie, you need to see that movie. And But there's a whole statement where he kind of talks about the man and pushes down authority a little bit. In around the world today, we could see all sorts of abuses of authority. One that might immediately come to mind is um, the war in Ukraine, where um, authority is being misused and abused to to wage war against others. You could go to the southern hemisphere and go to Peru, where the president there just uh, I don't know maybe about a month ago decided that he would try to suspend Congress, declare some sort of state of emergency, so that he could rule by just direct decree. Um, he was ousted by uh, the police there, and he has fled. I, I'm not sure where he's trying to flee. But um, we can think of bad bosses, you know, bad bad bosses that we've had over time, maybe bosses that kind of kind of like their authority went to their head and they kind of leveraged that over us, uh, maybe threatened to fire us if we didn't do things exactly the same way, made, maybe made work an inhospitable workplace. And we could even think of social media and we kind of give social media a little bit of authority whenever we, apparently, whenever we talk about things and then we look at our phones a little bit later and you think you were having a talk about camping, you know, with some friends and or with your wife or, or whatever, and all of a sudden you're seeing ads for sleeping bags and lanterns and all sorts of things. It's like, I didn't ask for this, right? Authority is kind of abuse everywhere we go. And it can cause us to be a little bit skeptical sometimes of the authority that is around us. But today we're going to see that Jesus is different, that Jesus uses his authority differently than others. And that Jesus exercises his authority with compassion, with care for others. Not leveraging his authority over people, not even lording his authority over others, but he uses it to serve. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Luke 4. We're going to look at verses 31 to 44 together. God's word says, Then he went down to Capernaum in a town in Galilee and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be silent and come out of him. In throwing him down before them, The demon came out of him without hurting him at all. Amazement came over them all, and they were saying to one another, What is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power, and they come out. And news about him began to spread, 
to go out to every place in the vicinity. After he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. As he laid his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Also demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. When it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place. But the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, It is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray. Father, every word you say proves true, and you're a shield to those who take refuge in you. Your word is said to be a lamp for our feet and a light for our paths. So God, would you use it to shine a light on Christ so that we might see him more clearly this morning? We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to work through our text with three points. The first is power over demons. Power over demons. Last week, we read from a text earlier in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus lays out his campaign platform, his, his mission statement, and it says this from Isaiah 61, and he pulls in verse 58. He says, this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And now we get to see Jesus begin to show us what this looks like on the ground, begin to show us how he will live this out. And he heads over to Capernaum. So up from Nazareth, his hometown, over to Capernaum, which kind of sits right along the sea. It's a beautiful setting. And he begins, goes to a synagogue there, and he encounters a man with an unclean demonic spirit. So basically the dude is demon possessed. Now the text goes out of the way to point this out. So this wasn't like a normal thing in the synagogue where just demon-possessed people just randomly walked in. But this moment, um, there's a man there with a demon. Now, we'd do well here to pause and say a word about demons and Satan and such, because depending on your church background, you can have all sorts of beliefs about this. And we need to let Scripture kind of shape how we believe about this topic. So, some people have grown up in church traditions where demons are everywhere, right? Where like anytime anything goes wrong, it's the dang devil. You're running late for work one day and then you hit traffic. Hmm, devil, right? Or you could have left earlier. (laughs) Burnt your toast that morning, the devil, right? Get in an argument at work, the devil, right? Coffee's bad, the devil. That's actually true, by the way, that last, that last one. Um, 
And then some of us, in I, probably my own tradition, like have grown up in a in like a, a a faith that is a bit more like rationalistic, a bit more like heady. We love theology and doctrine. Not that the other side, not that people on the other side don't, but we we basically don't see Satan or demons anywhere. It's almost like spiritual warfare never exists. We're the people saying, well, you could have just left earlier. We're the you know, we're the kind of the rational ones. We're like, what are you talking about? The devil, you just need to be personally responsible for your own decisions and stop blaming everything on him, right? Some of us grew up in that camp. And really, I think the scriptures want to bring those two together a little bit for us. That there is a world that we can't see, that something is going on in the world, that demons and Satan do exist in, in wherever the light breaks in, you'll find conflict there. So it's not myth. So we can't read this as just like some mythical story. These, these are real demons in real places and this really happens. And it would have us pull these things together. Scripture paints a world that was created good and created beautiful and one where Satan was at work in that beautiful created world seeking to subvert what God has done. We can think back to Genesis um, 3, right? Where in, in the garden, the snake came and tried to deceive. So, so we see this real tension going on. This is a world dense with struggle and conflict and battle. And what Jesus does in this text is he steps into that conflict. And, and then we see verse 32 that the people are amazed after he heals them. They were, they says that they were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. And then we see that his authority is legitimate authority. And the way Luke has set up this passage, he's trying to like get us to step in and imagine that we are spectators to all of the stuff that's kind of going around, that we're seated in the synagogue and we're seeing and hearing the events that are taking place. And so this man comes up and it recognizes Jesus. The demon inside shouts out, and we can kind of hear him from the text. He said, leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. So the demon kind of like tries to stiff arm Jesus. You don't have anything to do with us. What are you doing here? And Jesus basically responds with shut up and come out of him. And with a word... The man falls to the ground and the demon leaves. And what Jesus shows us in this moment is that his authority and his power is to push against the work of the devil. That he is showing that the reign of God is breaking through. That that, that, that Genesis account way back in Genesis 3 is now being pushed against and that light is piercing through the darkness. And Jesus is breaking in and saying, I have power over demons and over sin and over Satan. First John 3, 8 would say this. The second part, it says, the son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. And so Jesus comes and he, he says that he's come to proclaim good news for the poor to release the captives. And what Jesus shows us is that he is releasing those captive by the devil. 
And this is good news for us because Jesus has power to destroy Satan and his works. That, that whenever Satan is opposed to the people of God, whether that's through deception, whether that's through um, accusation, accusing you of sin, Jesus has power to destroy it. And he is beginning to undo all that. But he has power over demons. Second thing is authority. He has power over sickness, which is our next point. So as you would expect, Capernaum is just a buzz with everything going on. Like they see a man healed of a demon, news is spreading, and his teaching spreads through the region. And then the scene shifts from a synagogue and we enter Simon's house. Now, Simon might sound familiar to you because this is the Simon that you'll come to know as Peter. And he is married, church tradition says, and the Bible kind of says, and his mother-in-law is in his house. So I don't know what he did wrong, but I'm um, <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> so his mother-in-law is in his house and she's sick with a fever. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, with fever, what's the big deal? She might have the flu. We've all had the flu at least once this season, it seems like. And But this fever is severe. The way the text kind of, kind of poses this to us is that it has a grip on her, that she is really, really ill. And she is held by this sickness. And so Jesus, it says that Jesus stood over her, which implies that she was like lying down. She is wiped out and it is not looking good. She was in the grip of an illness that was holding her down. And the picture here that, that the text is trying to paint is one of captivity. That she's held captive by fever. And let's remind ourselves, friends, that sickness is a result of sin. That sickness is a result of sin in the world, of this being a world that's just permeated with sin everywhere. Like many of you, I've spent my fair share of time in visiting family or friends, church family, in the hospital. And there's few things more sad than watching someone in the grip of an illness that don't that doesn't seem to let go. Just over the past two weeks, I've been praying for my friend who have a 30-week-old infant in the NICU right now that that is has to have a brain drain put in and is going through all sorts of treatment. It's terrible. And you watch it and it's like, what? is this from? And, and we can just kind of go through other sicknesses that kind of pervade our lives. We can think of autoimmune diseases. We can think of COVID-19 that, that will never go away. And we can think of the flu and we can think of um, more severe diseases that people live with, cancers and so forth and so on. It's awful. And some of us have the aches and pains of age and, and so on. I can't eat gluten and I really want a pizza right? Like there's just all of these things that, that we forget sometimes that are not just like supposed to be normal to us, but it's the results of living in a fallen world. They're the effects, the ripples from that Genesis sin. And so Peter's mother-in-law is held by this fever in, at the time, 
of this illness, fevers were often thought of to be, to be a form of judgment for breaking God's covenant. So you don't wonder. What do people around her think? Is this woman being punished by God? But the text doesn't say anything about that. She's not being punished for sin. She's just living in a sinful world. And Jesus comes up to her and he doesn't ask, well, what did you do to deserve this? And she's laying down and kind of crippled by a disease. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't, he doesn't say that she's done anything wrong. He rebukes the sickness that held her down. And the text says, he stood over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. When Jesus speaks over the fever, it leaves. And what, what we kind of have presented for us is, is this woman who's in the grip of sin, not because of what she's done, but she's living with the effects of a fallen world. She's living with the effects of a world permeated by evil. And then when Jesus speaks into it, she is free. She is freed from the effects of sin at that time. She's freed from the effects of a fallen world. Jesus has power over demons and he has authority over sickness. And he comes in this account to drive those things away. And what that means for us is we don't have a weak savior who can't deal with the brokenness of this world, who looks out from a distance, but we have a savior who is able to drive out the works of the devil and the effects of sin. And you like look around and say, well, I still see the effects of sin everywhere. And that is true. We still see the effects of everywhere sin everywhere. But remember that Christ is undoing those things and will one day undo those things for good. He's a savior who has authority and power. And finally, he uses his power with compassion, power with compassion. After the story, the text really picks up speed a little bit. The sun is setting. It's a Sabbath. So Sabbaths are from Friday at sundown to, to, to Saturday at sundown. So there's just kind of an aside. Jesus is probably healing people on the Sabbath, which we'll learn later is, is against um, the religious people of the day. And so he's kind of healing people on the Sabbath and people are waiting for the sun to go down so that they can begin to like go to Jesus and, and find healing for their sin and, or, and for what ails them. And then the text says this, verse 40, second half of it, it says, as he laid his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Jesus exercises his authority with compassion. He doesn't use it for his own benefit. He uses it to love. And the verse doesn't seem that magnificent on its face might not jump out to you, just like, oh, he healed more people. But this is compassion in action. You got people pouring in from all over the place. You know, they're sick, they got diseases, they're infirmed, they have something, something wrong, and, and, Jesus, and they're just pressing in on Jesus. And Jesus, he doesn't just do some like magical incantation of like, okay, y'all be healed and go away now, right? Or, or just, okay, be healed, be done. 
But Jesus gives particular attention to each person. And I find that's completely moving. In an age where power so often like suppresses people, where, where, there's, where the haves and the have-nots are, are divided, where power doesn't mingle with weakness often, Jesus, he steps in and he sees each and every person for what they're coming to him with. And he lays his hands on them and gives healing. He sees their weakness. One of the things that I do when I've moved to a new place or we need to find a new doctor for something or other is I go on health grades. You ever ever use health grades or whatever thing and you kind of look up a doctor's name and you see like how many stars are rated and what people said about them. And this, is, this has been kind of helpful for me to as I've looked to, for a couple doctors and occasionally you see some like doctors that are rated one or three stars and then you're like, you're like oh, why is that like that? And so I scroll down and then you'll see things like this doctor rushed me out of the office or this doctor already thought how he was thought about how he was going to treat me before he came into the room and met me or I felt like a nobody to this doctor or he was just in a hurry and he wasn't really there. Well, this isn't so with Jesus. He's patient. He sees each person and he lays his hands on them and heals them. You ever talk to someone and you haven't, and you don't feel like you had their full attention? Maybe you've been that person too. Maybe it's your spouse or friend or your teenager. You're like, get off your phone, put it down, look me in the eye. There's a recent study that came out that said one of the things that kids long for is for their parents to spend less time on their phone and more time in conversation is kind of crazy to think about. Well, look at the actions of Jesus. He's not a divided savior where he doesn't see people, where his attention is kind of shifting. Well, hold on over here. I got to pay it. Like he is, he is in the moment with these people and he sees them. This is power and authority with compassion in action. And this is our Savior. This is our Jesus who sees us, who knows us, who knows our frame, who knows our weaknesses, who's able to, to look at us and to see what ails us and what, and what things are hurting us and the, how we're tired or, or stressed or depleted or depressed. And Jesus is able to see those things. You will never be burned by Jesus. He will never ghost you. This is who he is. He doesn't, he doesn't even turn any of the sick people away. They just keep coming. This is the Savior who's worth following. Every once in a while, um, we get a picture of what authority and compassion looks like. And I think we're drawn to these things because they, they kind of are a picture or a little bit of a window into, into what we long for. We long for a king who loves and a king who sees and knows and who stoops down to us. Well, I remember hearing a story about Pope Francis, and I'm, I'm a happy Protestant, not interested in being Catholic at all. I got a lot of theological problems with Catholicism. But when you're the Pope, you're kind of a big deal. One comedian says when you're Catholic, having the Pope is like having your own superhero. Um, but 
he's kind of a big deal, right? And there's usually security guards because whenever you're a big deal, you have a lot of security. And whenever you're the Pope and the leader of millions and millions of, of congregants and thought to be the theological descendant of St. Peter, like you have a lot of security and a lot of staff and a lot of pomp around you. And I remember hearing a story that when Pope Francis, I don't know if he's still doing this, I don't uh, particularly follow his life, but I remember reading a story, it was in the Guardian or something like that, that Pope Francis would sneak out of the Vatican in the middle of the night and go to the poor on the streets of Rome to pray with them and to give them money. And I thought like, man, that's so cool that, that he would just like kind of push against all of the, the fluff that came with that office and like go out on the streets with normal people and see them and see their need. Jesus is greater than any Pope. He actually came to us and sees our need. The word made flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And we've seen his glory, the glory as the one and only son, full of grace and truth. And we're seeing that right here in the person of Jesus. And he stepped into a world to release people who were held captive by sin and who were held captive by the devil. The demon shouts at the end of the passage. It says in 41, the demons were coming out of many saying that you are the son of God. But Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Now why would Jesus tell demons not to say who he was? Well, it's not completely clear, but most clear is that he didn't want the testimony of demons, nor did he need it. So he kind of silences them. And the second reason that I think is because Jesus wants who he is connected to his cross. Because this Jesus, he's willing to go for the depths of his people. He's going to liberate people from, from sin and the effects of sin in this world. He exercises his authority with liberating compassion. And finally, the crowds die down a little bit. Jesus goes off to a deserted place, presumably to pray. And this isn't uncommon if you know the stories of the Gospels at all. Jesus got a way to connect with the Father and rest. And I just want to take a brief aside and say that if Jesus needed to, to get away every once in a while, maybe you do too. Take a break, get alone with your Father and rest. Get depleted, worn down, tired. You're human. Maybe you get compassion fatigue. You have a lot of things going on. You're caring for a lot of people and you just need to take a break. It's okay. You're human. Maybe it's because your, your children are, are needy because all children are needy. Maybe you just need to get away to a deserted place to pray like Jesus and remember your compassionate Savior who sees you. And maybe you hear that and you're like, but I don't understand. I, you don't understand. I just get interrupted whenever I go do those things. Well, that's interesting because Jesus gets interrupted too if you look at this passage because the crowds catch up to him in the middle of his getting away and they urge him to stay. And it's interesting that the crowds in Nazareth, they tried to hurl Jesus over a cliff. And then the crowds in Capernaum, they're like, no, Jesus, you gotta stay. 
And I don't know what completely drove that. I can think of two things. One, they just really loved what Jesus did for them. But I also think that things are just better with Jesus. And they just want him to be there. They want, like, yes, this is our king. This is the one we follow. And look, he's just releasing people and freeing and liberating and, and forgiving. But Jesus was laser focused on his mission and said that he needed to go to other towns. Because this is Jesus. He takes his message of liberation and freedom from sin and Satan and fear and death, and he just keeps carrying it to the ends of the world. And you might be here this morning and you might be unsure about the person of Jesus, but he is here to free. And in a society that seems to think that we get freedom from success, freedom from self-identification, freedom by autonomy, freedom from money, freedom, freedom from individuality, Jesus comes to make us realize that the true and ultimate freedom is found in him and from him. He can the only He's the only one that can really free us. We fast forward to the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke. There's a kind of a long passage. I'm going to put it on the screen so we can follow along. And this is from Acts 10. And Peter's, Peter's giving a sermon, and he says this. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. So he's referring to all of this stuff that we're talking about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under tyranny of the devil, because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the apostles or all the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And what Peter is saying, and what he's saying to us, is that this Jesus is the one sent by God. This Jesus is the one who can free. This Jesus is the one who can forgive sins. This Jesus is the one who rose from the dead. This Jesus will one day undo everything that is broken and difficult and messed up about this world. This is Jesus and he is worth following and he uses his authority to lay down his life because King Jesus is a king who exercises his authority with compassion. One day Jesus will come back and all those things will be gone. Sickness will shudder. Those stuck in diseases will be completely freed and will realize that King Jesus was who he said he was. And for now, we follow him. We hold on to hope in the middle of brokenness in the world around us. And one day we'll realize that death itself will be swallowed up 
by life forever because this is our king.